Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hi friends, welcome to episode 28. Did you guys listen to the previous interview with Mark from Finca Rosenheim in Peru? I love the honesty that Mark brought to the conversation, and I want to honor how risky it feels for many producers to share their experiences. Since they are at the beginning of the chain, they feel the most downward pressure from other actors in the chain, and part of that pressure sometimes expresses itself as a reluctance to appear as if they're complaining or maybe seeming ungrateful. Mark is not a spokesperson for all coffee producers. He was sharing his individual experience. And many producers have privately shared similar feelings with me, but Mark was the only one willing to share publicly in this manner, and I'm really hoping that he starts a trend. On another personal note, this is the last episode that I wrote in my home in Cleveland. I arrived in Cleveland in 2017, and I meant to stay only for one year, and then just boom, three years and eight months flew by. You know, I thought that this California girl would have a really tough time living in the Midwest, but it's been a great place to live, and I've loved it, and it's also time to move on. If you're from the East or West Coast and have considered moving to the Midwest, I give it 5 out of 5 stars. Definitely recommend if you're in need of a change of pace and a lower cost of living. By the time this episode is released, my partner and I will have sold all of our belongings and be living out of our carry-on suitcases. Our first stop was California to reconnect with my family um, before we crossed the U.S.-Mexico border on foot and to head down to Ensenada for a bit. If you're interested in the next steps of our journey, I'll be sharing the new projects that we have in the works over on my Patreon page, and you can find that link in the show notes. Over on Patreon, you'll also have the opportunity to access research papers and ask me questions. Okay, I think that's about it for updates. Let's dig into this episode, which is the third part in a series started with episode 25 and 26. You know, this happens to me a lot. I mean to do a single episode on a topic that I find interesting, and then all of a sudden it balloons into, you know, a three-part series. Um, And even then, there are still a lot of things that get left out. And that's why it's really fun to be able to have a lot of these conversations and continue the conversation over on Patreon. So the original idea was to have an episode around the word native and its relationship to yeast. This is because it comes up a lot regarding you know, wild yeast, native yeast uh, versus commercial yeast, and what should be allowed in competitions. If you started the season with me in October, you'll remember that I started exploring the topic of what we lose when we take a plant from its native environment. Episode 25 looked at the relationship between coffee trees and the fermentation. Dr. Amy Dudley's research showed that native microbes do not travel with the plant material, and therefore all coffee fermentations outside of Ethiopia are non-native fermentations. Like, all of them. Colombia, Guatemala, Sumatra, Hawaii, Peru, Mexico. If the coffee tree is not native to a location, then the fermentation cannot be native. So episode 25 showed that when we take a plant from its native environment, the above-ground microbes needed for fermentation are left behind. Episode 26 was about how trees communicate. Episode 26 showed that when we take a plant from its native environment, the microbes it needs to have a strong immune response are also left behind. The below-ground soil microbes that make up the wood wide web, the microbes that allow trees to defend themselves and live long, healthy lives, are also lost. 
The trees that don't have the ability to tap into the wood wide web are weaker, they're less healthy, and they usually need to rely on fertilizers and pesticides to survive. So we've touched on the above and below ground microbes that are left behind. But is it only about microbes? Are microbes the most important thing that we leave behind? I argue that it is not. As important as I think they are, I think there is something more valuable that is lost. Today, in part three, I want to talk about another aspect we miss out when we take something from its native environment. But before we move forward, I want to take a moment and look at the word native more closely to make sure that we're all on the same page. You all know that I love a deep dive into the words that we use, and there are a few words that come up when we talk about coffee that are related, but too often I think that we blur the line between them. And some of the words that I'm talking about are origin, native, indigenous, and local. Maybe it's a little fuzzy to you why this distinction matters in coffee, so first, let's look at the issue in terms of people. Pre-pandemic, my job required a lot of travel, and podcasts are my favorite way to learn, so I listen to a lot of them. A great podcast for travelers is called How Not to Travel Like a Basic Bitch. The host creates thoughtful episodes about how we can travel responsibly and respect the places we visit. Um, she talks a lot about how we can travel for education and not exploitation. In her episode titled, Who Gets to Be a Local?, Dr. Kiona asks us to examine our definitions when we talk about ourselves. She was born and raised in Hawaii, but she rejects the term Native Hawaiian because she is not Indigenous. Her genetic heritage is Asian. She is not part of the Indigenous peoples of Hawaii. She considered herself a local while she lived there, but today she lives in Austin, Texas. So even though she was born and raised in Hawaii, she is not a native nor a local of Hawaii anymore. She used to live in Hawaii, but because she no longer lives there, she doesn't maintain any claims to it. At one point in the episode, she is talking to a guy and asks him, Hey, what tribe are you from? And a confused man answers, Uh, what do you mean? And then she says, Oh, the sticker you're wearing. It says Colorado native. And he goes, Oh yeah, I was born there. Maybe you didn't hear anything wrong in that little exchange, but with some context, I hope this quick exchange makes you cringe a little bit. This white person was born in Colorado, so he felt it was appropriate to call himself a Colorado native. But just because someone is born in a place doesn't make them indigenous to the region. I know, I used to think it was simple. If you were born somewhere, you were native to that area. But it's not so simple. Maybe it's not immediately obvious to you, but for a moment, can you imagine how disrespectful it sounds to indigenous tribes when they hear someone living in their land who doesn't share their culture call themselves a native? Listening to an outsider give themselves the title of native with no regard to what was there before he arrived, with no regard to the people that continue to occupy the land. This concept was crystallized by a guest on the podcast, Tazba Rose Chavez. Tazba is a citizen of the San Carlos Apache tribe. She says, Native means indigenous. It means being from a people and a place that predates colonialism. It means you and your ancestors are inherently rooted into a land, and that you are physically and spiritually living in relationship to that land as it is the living, breathing keeper of your worldviews and belief system. Native means you didn't come from anywhere else. In a state where many people don't think indigenous people ever were or continue to be today, it is a form of erasure to call oneself a California native when you are not indigenous to California. 
Indigenous people in California and the rest of the United States, Mexico, Canada, all predate the idea of what America is today. So when I first moved to Ohio a few years ago and people asked me where I was from, I wanted to keep it simple and I would sometimes just reply, oh, I'm a California native. And what that meant to me is that I had spent 25 years living in California and I identified with that culture much more than the Guatemalan culture, um, even though I was born in Guatemala and most of my family still lives there. I knew at that point that it didn't feel appropriate to call myself a native of Guatemala because my culture growing up was much more American. But calling myself a California native was also not the right move. When I did that, when I talked about myself that way, I was only thinking about my intention in using a phrase, not the consequences of using it. I was centering myself. I thought it was a harmless way to convey the idea that I identified with a particular place. I no longer believe that it's harmless. Calling yourself a native erases the existence of the people who were the original stewards of the land and whose culture and knowledge is embedded into the culture of the region. And the thing that's interesting, too, is that it's, it's so easy to not be offensive. It's so easy for me to change the phrase slightly. So now, if I'm asked where I'm from, instead of saying that I'm a California native, I usually say that I grew up in California. It's a small linguistic tweak that is both more accurate and doesn't disrespect the people that came before me. I believe changing the way we talk is a simple way we can begin to change the way we think. Also, while we're on the topic of cultural appropriation, quick side note, I hope no one listening to this is still using the phrase spirit animal anymore. For international listeners who might not know the phrase, you know, blank is my spirit animal, it's, that's a common American phrase. And we usually would say it for things like coffee is my spirit animal or Beyonce is my spirit animal. I know the phrase is usually used to express admiration or other positive feelings, and we usually only use it to talk about something we love and identify with, um, but intention is not the only metric. It's disrespectful to appropriate something sacred from another culture and to use it for our entertainment. Spirit animals are part of Native American cultures. They aren't part of our Western culture. They are not ours to use. Even if we think that we're using them in a positive and potentially flattering way, that's not for us to decide. When I was growing up, no one told me that. I didn't have anyone around to point out the offensive things that I was saying. And now, when I learn something new, I don't feel shame about it. I just learned to say something else. Well, that's not entirely true. I am human. I will feel a little bit of shame for a moment. I feel my cheeks getting hot. And then I take a deep breath, and then I make myself a promise to do better. But I want to go back to another important point from Tazba. She says, Native means indigenous. It means being from a people and a place that predates colonialism. Native means you didn't come from anywhere else. This is the point that sticks out to me in this quote. It's, it's the connection that to be considered native, you must predate colonialism. But the story of coffee cannot be separated from colonialism. I think that we take for granted that we already know what these words mean, but I argue that we are using them imprecisely. We are ignorant at best and offensive at worst. For example, we do it all the time when we talk about coffee origins. We say we are traveling to origin. Or we say, oh, I just got back from origin. Or I'm headed to origin. 
And we know when somebody says that, when a coffee professional says that, we we know they're going to a place where coffee grows. And maybe they're going to visit a supplier or they're going to secure contracts. It's a very common way to talk about coffee travel. Um, Or maybe consumers, when we're buying coffee, we may walk into a cafe and ask, what origins do you have for pour overs? Or maybe when we're talking to each other, we can ask each other, what's your favorite origin? And then maybe someone answers Colombia or Panama or Honduras or Papua New Guinea. But this is imprecise. It is inaccurate. Yes, Papua New Guinea is perhaps where the coffee you are holding was grown, but it is not where the coffee plant originated. The plant and the microbes are not original to that place. I don't think it makes sense to call them coffee origins precisely because they were brought by foreigners, outsiders. None of the countries I mentioned are the origins of coffee plants. Coffee plants are not native or indigenous to Central America or Indonesia or Asia. So what could we say instead of coffee origin? We could say, the coffee you are drinking was grown in Brazil. Or, I'm visiting a coffee-producing country. Or, I prefer coffees that come from Mexico. Besides origin, another related word I think is worth looking at is local. Perhaps you say you buy local coffee because you buy from the roaster in your city or neighborhood. But coffee is not local to Cleveland or London or Portland. When I buy coffee from Phoenix Coffee, the roaster that was in my neighborhood, I am supporting a local business. But the coffee sold by the business is local to Guatemala or Brazil or China. This is a small distinction, but I think it's important because our words matter and the words that we use shape our thoughts, and so often we overuse the word local to describe our coffee. When we do, it's an erasure of the monumental effort it takes from so many people in the coffee supply chain to get it from where it's grown to our cup. Our local coffee usually has to travel halfway across the world to get to us. So if we keep telling ourselves that we only buy local coffee, it lets us gloss over our carbon footprint. So many coffee drinkers don't know how or where coffee is grown. I bet a lot of people really do think coffee can be local, like buying locally grown strawberries in your farmer's market. Obviously, there are some places that truly have local coffee. If you're in Hawaii, you can buy local coffee. It was grown by a farmer there, it was processed there, it was roasted there, and you can drink it in a cafe right there. It's local, but it's still not original to Hawaii. It arrived in the 1800s. Hawaii is not a coffee origin. It is a coffee producing region. And maybe you're rolling your eyes a little at this point and sort of thinking like, oh, there she goes again, policing our words. And I just want to be clear that I have no authority. I can't police anything. I'm just sharing information in the hope that it will give you a different way to think about coffee and the people that grow it and how it gets delivered to us. And my hope is that by thinking differently about coffee, you can examine your individual role in the big picture. I don't think we can use ourselves as the only reference when deciding what words to use. I think we need to zoom out and look at things in context, see how they fit into the larger context, and then examine how we fit into that larger context. Because our word choice impacts our perspective. The idea of centering one's experience kind of reminds me of how yeast inoculated coffee fermentations are called innovative. I was recently asked to give a talk about innovative coffee processing. If it's something that we've never heard of, if it's new to us, we usually call it innovative. We call it a trend. But rarely do we get the context. I bristle when I hear the word innovative. 
or when I have to speak about it because fermenting coffee with commercial yeast strains is one of the least innovative things I can think of. It's how coffee should have been processed for the last hundred years. But coffee has been left out of the fermentation industry. Many other foods like wine, beer, sake, bread, and cheese producers mastered this part of the process ages ago. So what we in the coffee industry call innovation, I call catching up. The word innovation gives the impression that coffee is surging ahead when it's really just trying to get to the starting line where other fermented products were decades ago. As long as we keep repeating the word innovation in coffee, we don't stop and think about how behind the industry is compared to other specialty products. Innovation is like rose-colored glasses we can wear to not look at some of the dramatic gaps in resources and information that are available to coffee producers. Fermentation protocols with yeast and bacteria, or innovative processing methods, all of this is not new information. It's old information that the, we in the coffee industry are not very good at accessing. Talking about innovation is a distraction from the more important question of what took the coffee industry so long to get here. I want to share something with you that I find odd. In the 2017 Specialty Coffee Association Expo in Seattle, Dr. Dudley presented her yeast research herself, and there was a lot of conversation about it at the time. And by that, I mean the hours immediately after her presentation. But in the last three years, I've barely seen it mentioned again. All the big players in the specialty coffee industry all attend SCA Expo. They all heard this information. Years ago, a scientist that we invited to our conference presented the research that should have made many of these conversations obsolete, or at least shaped them in a more profound way. And yet, we still have so much misunderstanding about native yeast, and instead focus on what should and shouldn't be allowed in competitions. If you're a coffee lover, but not in the industry, it might seem odd to be so focused on competitions. You'd think they'd be just an auxiliary branch of the specialty industry. But they're not. In many ways, they are central. Competitions are where stars are born, where coffee celebrities are made. Winning a competition starts careers. Many winners start companies or open coffee shops. They teach courses, they write books, they start trends, they manufacture coffee gear and machines. The effects of the competitions ripple out to all edges of the coffee industry. Like it was mentioned in episode 14 with George Howell and episode 27 with Mark, competitions are important for producers too. They provide visibility and access to new markets. Producer competitions set record high prices that can raise the standard for the whole industry. Maybe you used to think $5 a pound was a good price, but then you see a coffee that won a competition for $50 a pound, and then it starts to give you some context. We start to broaden out the, the limits or the range of prices that, that are possible. Many coffee producers depend on loans and banks to survive the year. There is usually little capital for major investments in new equipment or infrastructure. Winning a competition can bring a lot of positive cash flow to a producer, and that's why it's important for many of them to try to compete. And to compete, they need a coffee that stands out. And to stand out, they try new protocols and microbes. Like Mark from Finca Rosenheim said, to be successful today, a producer has to have extraordinary coffee. And this creates a new tension between producers and consumers. All this innovation from producers is leading many buyers in the industry asking, when is coffee no longer coffee? 
Where is the line? When does it go too far? Is coffee that tastes like ginger and cinnamon and lychee really coffee anymore? Many think that fruity-tasting coffees are not real coffee because a profile is so different to what consumers have been used to. Which is really funny to me because coffee is a fruit. I think the fruity flavors we have now are the real coffee flavors much more than the roasty, chocolatey flavors that we got used to. So the questions of defining a classic style or of what constitutes additions are important questions, but very few of the conversations that I have heard involve science or historical context or even empathy, to be honest, which seems to me like an important piece of the puzzle. Many producers are eager to participate in competitions, but risk not qualifying because they are using yeast or bacteria and because of a fundamental misunderstanding of science on the part of the industry. There are a lot of negative judgments on producers who are perceived to, quote, go too far. There's a perception that some producers are not being honest or using tricks, that they do not have real coffee, whatever that is. The consequences of this type of purist thinking is that it exerts downward pressure on the producers to make extraordinary coffee without using perfectly reasonable tools at their disposal. It's like we are asking producers to pull themselves out of the bargain basement commercial prices, make an exceptional coffee, but to do it blindfolded with one hand tied behind their back. Another example of this I recently heard from a patron of the podcast, Jack, from B3 Coffee in Adelaide, Australia. I'm taking this excerpt from a much longer conversation about buying practices, um, but a sentence he said during one of our exchanges really stuck out to me. He wrote, I feel the customers that we have that are looking for organic coffee are more concerned about pesticides than benefiting farmers. And you know, I hear this a lot too. Um, Sometimes when I meet new people or like some kind of extended family gatherings and people hear that I work in the coffee industry, a lot of them will say, oh, they love coffee. And, you know, when I ask them what kind of coffee they're into, um, they usually have a really hard time pinpointing a producing country or a style, but they tell me, oh, don't worry, I always buy organic. Or, I, you know, I only look for organic from, from um, whatever company they happen to buy from. As if that is, you know, for them, the most important and, and guiding light of how they purchase coffee. And I think that organic certifications are an easy way to feel good about ourselves and that we are doing the right thing. And if you listen to episode 27 with Mark, you will now know that organic certifications are not well regulated in coffee. But the real problem that I see is that it tends to pit the environment against the humans who farm it. And I believe this is a false choice. I don't think we need to pick or, you know, pick a side or support one side over the other. I don't like the idea of using pesticides in my food either. I wish we didn't have to use them. However, if you listen to episode 26, I hope you see now that wanting organic, pesticide-free coffee is really difficult because of how the system was set up. Most people don't use pesticides because they are evil or unaware of the harm. Often, it's not a choice at all. It's a necessity. When you have a monocrop and no underground root system to help the plants defend themselves against pests, you must compensate in some way. You can't take away the plant's own defense system and punish farmers for trying to compensate by using pesticides to protect their crops. We are asking plants to grow where they are not supposed to grow, naked, without their microbes, their immune system to protect them, and we want to refuse to give them external help. 
The buyers and consumers setting the rules lack a fundamental understanding of yeast and microbiology, and yet they are punishing producers by creating arbitrary restrictions in the name of purity. I find this very disturbing. Are you still with me? I just checked the time. It's about 30 minutes into the podcast, and I still haven't told you the third thing that we leave behind when we take a plant from its environment. Uh, The thing that is more important than microbes, in my opinion. But if you've been around here for a couple of episodes, uh, you'll know that one of my favorite words is context. And I don't think it makes sense to move forward without the previous half an hour of context. Um, So in an effort to not frustrate you any further, I will tell you what it is. Knowledge. Indigenous knowledge. Let's go back to Dr. Dudley's research on yeast origins. A helpful thing that the Dudley lab did in this research is that they didn't just map the diversity of coffee and cacao yeast, they also mapped the diversity of wine yeasts. This was really smart because it was helpful to prove their point and give some context. In the research paper, there is a large graphic that shows the distribution of the coffee, cacao, and wine yeast. Even if you don't feel comfortable analyzing scientific papers, this graphic is very visual and easy to interpret. If you've joined Patreon, you can download the paper yourself and see the graphic. It's on page 3, figure 1a. It shows a smattering of colorful dots that represent data points. Blue, blue dots are for the wine yeast, green dots for cacao yeast, and red dots for coffee yeast. The green and red dots are scattered all across the graphs. They take up huge amounts of space. Um, But even though they take up a big amount of space on the graph, they barely overlap. The blue wine yeast are huddled together in a much smaller, um, a much smaller area of the graph, and they're all like really close together, almost on top of each other. So this visual shows that there is a huge diversity among coffee and cacao yeasts, and less diversity among wine yeast. And because usually more diversity is better, therefore less diversity is usually worse. If wine is often the example of to which coffee should strive. And then we find out that coffee yeasts are more diverse. It's kind of like a win for coffee. It's like, finally, coffee has something on wine. Finally, coffee does something much better or has something that is more positive than wine does. And I think that this is a very tempting takeaway, but it's a distraction. I think this is the conclusion many people who saw the research took away and why there is not more talk of Dr. Dudley's research in the coffee industry. I think it was the wrong conclusion without the context of how long wine has been cultivated. When this research was presented to the coffee community, instead of learning that no fermentations are native and that we are putting unnecessary and unreasonable constraints on coffee producers, instead of moving the industry forward, this wine distraction took the focus away from how to use the new information to make better decisions about competitions and was co-opted by marketing. Now the focus was to protect coffee from the same fate that wine had, the fear of homogeneity. The fear that if everyone uses the same yeast, won't everything taste the same. The fear that we must protect this supposed diversity. If you see the close cluster of yeast on the graph, the the close cluster of these blue dots, it does not match with the huge diversity of wine flavor found all over the world. More importantly, Do we really think wine as an industry has suffered from this? I don't think the topics of homogeneity should be ignored, but I think it's trying to solve a problem that doesn't really exist in coffee yet. 
like being worried about what college your child will go to before you've even had a child. One important thing that I think is missing from the wine versus coffee comparison is the context that wine is a traditional product and coffee is not. The earliest evidence of wine is 6000 BC in Georgia. We also have evidence from 5000 BC in Iran and 4000 BC in Sicily. The surprising thing to me is that not only are we talking about thousands of years, but that they are also referring to wine. They're not just pointing to the cultivation of grapes as a crop, they are pointing to the final product. 6000 BC in Georgia, there were already winemakers starting to perfect their craft. People have been making and drinking wine for a very long time. They've had thousands of years to get to know under which conditions different grape varieties grow best. Thousands of years to get familiar with what flavors are typical to different grape varieties. Thousands of years to experiment with different fermentation vessels. Thousands of years to pick out the best yeast for the fermentation. Thousands of years to incorporate wine into religious ceremonies, celebrations, and daily life. Thousands of years for the people to deeply embed wine into their culture. Thousands of years for the people to develop a taste for wine and become experts and connoisseurs of their own wine. Growing grapes, making coffee, and drinking and consuming the wine, this is what creates an appreciation of the final beverage. And it also closes the feedback loop. The people who make the product, drink the product, and therefore are the most expert. As I've mentioned in the terroir series, episodes 21, 22, and 23, grapes and wine originated in Europe, and today, three of the five largest wine-producing regions are still in Europe. The three countries are Italy, Spain, and France. This is a big part of having a traditional product. 8,000 years later, it's still mostly grown where it is native. This is a huge advantage of indigenous knowledge. The people and the plant have an intertwined history. In contrast, the earliest record of a coffee beverage is a 15th century in Yemen. We know the coffee shrub is native to Ethiopia, and yet today, coffee is grown in over 70 countries. Coffee is not native to 67 of the 70 countries that it grows in, and it needs to be brought there from outsiders looking to profit from cheap labor. Coffee is a plant of opportunity, a pioneering plant, a plant that opens new markets. We need plants like this too, but let's not confuse them with traditional plants. I'm not trying to pass judgment on which plant or system is better. They're both needed. I just want us to be able to talk about them in context. Wine is not superior to coffee or vice versa. In fact, I think they really should not be compared. Out of all of the things that I've talked about in all of the previous episodes, uh, the past two years of this podcast, this particular point, this is the biggest problem for me in the efforts to compare specialty coffee to wine, because wine benefits from centuries of native knowledge of the plant and the environment and the culture that drinks this product, that, that they are the expert. I think this part of history has been significantly downplayed when we try to compare wine to coffee. When you take a plant from its native environment, you also take away the people's knowledge of how to take care of that plant. And then what happens is the party who introduces that plant has the most knowledge about it. The party that brings the plant is likely the only one who has seen that plant in its own context. 
That party who introduces a plant probably knows what climate it came from, or how it was planted, or what they planted next to it, or how tall it grew, or what it looked like when it was sick, or what it looked like when it was healthy. The new people do not. They have not been able to see this new plant in context. They do not know how best to care for it. Straight out of the gate, there is an immediate power imbalance between the native people, the indigenous people, and the people who introduce a new plant. There is an immediate knowledge gap. So when we take a plant from its native environment, we leave behind the below-ground microbes that protect it and keep it healthy. We leave behind the above-ground microbes that transform and create flavor precursors. And we leave behind the culture and native knowledge of the people that know how to take care of this plant. From one side, it's a very elegant system. From the perspective of opportunity, a pioneering plant like coffee is perfect in many ways. If you introduce a new plant that has never grown in that environment, the new plant will struggle. This creates a second opportunity to sell the locals fertilizer, and a third opportunity to sell them pesticides to protect it, and a fourth opportunity to sell them specialized equipment, and a fifth opportunity to sell knowledge in the form of booklets, seminars, and even consultants. All of those other resources must come from outside sources because as the local or indigenous people, how can you take care of a plant that you have no history with? Mark from Finca Rosenheim in the previous episode touched on this when he said, I pay my workers and then everything else I invest goes overseas. So Mark is able to pay his workers. Um, perhaps he buys coffee from neighbors or other, other coffee farmers in his area, the rest of the inputs support other industries, the fertilizers he buys, even the yeast, the machines, um, even consultants like me, they're usually foreign. It's not money that stays in the Peru economy. And this is not an oversight. It's not a funny coincidence. This is by design. When you introduce something new that local people aren't familiar with, you also get to supply them with the problem and then sell them the solutions. So this power imbalance is not just something of the past, from when coffee was introduced. We still see it in action today when green buyers visit the coffee producers and provide processing information. The customer, the buyer, usually has more knowledge on how to process coffee because they have more access to books and seminars and consultants, and they also travel frequently to coffee farms. The barista, the roaster, the green buyer is the coffee connoisseur. Like I mentioned earlier, in wine, the winemakers had a strong culture of being wine drinkers, too. They are connoisseurs of their product. Coffee producers and coffee farmers are rarely connoisseurs of their product. Not being a connoisseur of your own product leaves you vulnerable to outsiders who are. Before I leave you today, I want to bring up one more thing for context. It's about maca. Maca is also called Peruvian ginseng. It is an edible, herbaceous, biennial plant. Maca is native to South America in the high Andes mountains of Peru. Maca has a huge range of medicinal properties that make it popular as a supplement, and today you can find it in many grocery stores. But one country that was specifically interested in its medicinal properties was China. In a single year, from 2013 to 2014, sales in China jumped 1,000%. For thousands of years, the maca farmers in Peru grew the crop for their own consumption. In the 80s, it was opened up to the world and they started to sell it for export. This dramatically changed their culture. Then, in 2013, 
they experienced the boom from China's interest and there was a dramatic flip in how maca was grown and used by the culture. The Chinese paid very high prices for the maca, but then in 2016, they disappeared. They committed biopiracy by taking the seeds and growing maca themselves. Since maca is native exclusively to Peru, what the Chinese have done violates international law. The Nagoya Protocol is signed by 129 countries and stipulates that, quote, the genetic code of a plant or animal that is unique to a country is the intellectual property of the people of that country, end quote. When maca is used abroad, Peruvians are entitled to royalties. Something interesting to note that out of the 129 countries that have signed the Nagoya Protocol, the United States is not one of them, which was initially surprising to me, but when I thought about it a little bit more, it, it echoes very much the sentiment, uh, the American sentiment of finders keepers. Anyway, back to maca. So while maca as an ingredient is rising in popularity in many countries, the farmers in Peru are not profiting from the increased demand. Check this out to add insult to injury. So their seeds were stolen, planted elsewhere, and then the thieves filed patents to protect their stolen goods from being stolen again by someone else. The Peruvian government even has a task force to try to challenge and break these illegal patents, but there are too many of them and the government cannot keep up. Even if the farmers of Peru are not physically growing the maca, it is still their intellectual property. For example, if you want to use a song for your movie, you ask the artist for their permission and then you pay them to be able to use their song. The artist receives royalties when other people are profiting from their work. This should also be happening with crops like maca that are indigenous to Peru, but it's not. And the thing about taking a plant from its native environment is a plants are resilient. We have seen that if you prop them up with enough external factors like fertilizers, light, shelter, water, the plants can learn to grow in new environments. But what about the native environment? What happens to the native environment that is left behind? Couldn't we just tell the Peruvian farmers to grow something else? Maybe you would give them advice to diversify, to not put all their eggs in one maca basket. Because diversification is generally good advice, but completely useless in this case. And coffee, we talk a lot about altitudes, at how high coffee can be grown. Very high altitudes for coffee are around 5,000 feet. Maybe a few places can grow as high as 6,000 feet, but this is rare. The native environment for maca is 13,000 feet. 13,000 feet. More than double the highest coffee trees. This is very high altitude. The Peruvian farmers weren't just growing maca because they liked it. It's because that's pretty much the only thing that can grow at that altitude. There really isn't anything else. Their only products are maca and ranching. Maca is a critical piece of the local culture and economy. So in conclusion, when we take a plant from its native environment, we leave behind the microbes in the soil that protect it, the microbes above the soil that give it flavor, the native knowledge of how to cultivate it, and we leave behind the people that depend on that crop to survive and who cannot so easily grow something else. I wanted to make these episodes so we could have more conversations about the consequences of our actions and to not be so quick to congratulate ourselves over innovations. I think many people in my generation are trying to be conscious of where our food comes from because we want to know that it's healthy, that it doesn't have chemicals and pesticides. 
but we don't often know the ethical consequences behind the foods we eat and value. Thanks for joining me today. And if you want to have these kinds of conversations with me, I encourage you to support the podcast and join Patreon. I really enjoy the kinds of conversations that I get to have with listeners of the podcast. The patrons make it possible for me to carve out time out of my week to make these episodes and to have them available for free for everyone else. If you see coffee in a different way after listening, consider joining with the link in the show notes and help me make more episodes. If you enjoy listening and get value out of these episodes, please share with a friend who loves coffee or wine, or maybe maca. If you want to be notified when the next one is coming out, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. Lucia is L-U-X-I-A. Thanks for listening, and remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.